Podcasting from Astrolab Studios, this is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast where we revisit sci-fi, fantasy, and just plain weird shows that have faded from the collective consciousness and didn't quite make the impact that they intended. This week, Almost Human, episodes 6 and 10. This is a custom version of a terahertz frequency transponder limiter. Okay. What it does, what all of these little mods working together do, they limit how long the heart will function. So effectively, it's a timer. Exactly. The timer will count down precisely 30 days, unless someone resets it remotely. At the end of the 30 days, it would stop the mod. Shut down the organ. That's what they're designed to do. Whoever gave Mr. Lee this heart did not reset it for him. That's what he meant at the emergency room when he said, they killed me. And he was right. Rudy, there could be more than 100 of them out there. It's an extortion racket. They're all on borrowed time. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast that explores little seen and little loved science fiction television. I'm your host, Luke, here with my co-host, Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I think I disagree with you on that. I think a lot of people love Almost Human. Well, I'm not saying this one specifically. Because if you're talking Galactica 1980, no one loved that. You and I didn't love it. The fans didn't love it. The network didn't love it. The actors didn't love it. Yeah, that one had the hardest go of it, I think. It was bad. Anyways, this, this show's not bad. It's just, you know... I think people remember the show a little more fondly than, than maybe it, it should be. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's pretty good so far. It's all right. I'm just saying. I wouldn't sit down and start drawing a picture of uh, old John Zuzu, whatever his name is in this show. Dorian or uh, Kenix? Yeah, Kenix. That's it. Zuzu. That's close. That You were really close. <laughs> Nearly had it. Yeah. Well, Jordan... Uh... For this episode of the podcast, I did a little bit of looking into the creator, uh, J.H. Wyman, just to mm-hmm. get some sense of the man who created the show. What's the uh, J.H. stand for? Joel something. Yeah. I think. I said I did a lot of looking into it, but I did never look into his initials. Sorry, I asked the one question you weren't ready for. I was not ready for that question, Jordan. You really threw me off. Sorry. Uh, I think it might have been Joel, though, actually, now that you say it. Yeah, sure. Joel. Uh, sorry, as you were. Well, he's... He's a guy who's uh, a little close to home for us, actually. In what way? He was born in the U.S., but he was actually raised in Montreal. And in his 20s, started acting in Toronto. Hmm. So he's he's a Canadian guy in a lot of ways. He's actually written a couple of Canadian films. Oh, yeah? Any we would have seen? That's, that's how his career started. Uh, nothing I think I've seen. One was a film called Pale Saints. Hmm. It was like a crime, small-time thug movie about these uh, guys trying to pull a job in Toronto. Sounds like a Frank D'Angelo joint, am I right? <laughs> You're not wrong. That's just uh, for Luke and I. <laughs> uh, Canadian auteur. Yeah, exactly. Frank D'Angelo. And then the other one he wrote was a, uh, a feature called Mr. Rice's Secret. Hmm. It starred David Bowie. Really? Sorry, was it Mr. Racist or Ray's Race? What, did, what was the word there you said? Rice. Oh, Rice. Okay, it wasn't either of the ones I thought I heard. No, it wasn't a movie called Mr. Racist Secret. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. I thought, that's weird that David Bowie signed on to that. His secret was he wasn't racist. It worked out well. No, uh, Mr. Racist Secret was about a a boy with cancer whose neighbor, David Bowie, dies and leaves to him a series of clues to a treasure, the potion of life. Hold on. (laughs) The potion of life was the treasure? Yeah. And what, what does the potion of life do? It gives you everlasting life? Yeah. Oh, that, that is a good treasure. He needs it. Oh, I forgot he had cancer already. So we're, we're going to watch this movie, right? If we can find it, maybe we will. It's a little science fiction-y. Yeah, well, Bowie's in it, so you know it's going to be weird. And then after that, uh, probably the thing that kind of got him into the, the place he is now is he wrote the movie The Mexican with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts. Oh, yeah. I remember that movie. I didn't see it. I think James Gandolfini was in that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Directed by Gore Verbinski. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. There you go. So all these movies exist, and you never see any of them. I think Brad Pitt had a mullet, is what I remember. That's that's what sticks with you? Yeah. I honestly was reading the synopsis for it, because I know I've seen it, and I don't really remember a lot of it. It's uh, I think it's a bit of a road movie or something. Well, it should have been a bigger hit than it was, right? The star power of Brad Pitt and the star power of Julia Roberts? I think it was a pretty big hit. Was it? I don't know. Check uh, Check the internet. 
All right, I'll check. I think it was a moderate hit at best. I think it did okay with those two in the leads and old Pirates of the Caribbean himself directing. Pirates of the Caribbean himself. That's funny. After he sort of did these movies, I think he had made a couple TV shows that were quite small, but Mm -hmm. he uh, ended up serving as a writer on Fringe. Did you ever see Fringe? I saw a little bit of Fringe. I know people really liked it. I, I... the the, uh, the beginning when I watched the pilot or something didn't really do it for me, and then I it, it went off into different worlds, and I was way behind, so I never really bothered. Did you watch it? I watched it recently. I think it was on Netflix or something, and I think we worked our way through it at some point, and it was okay. I I don't think I loved it, but it was okay. I think it sort of got a little too crazy in the end. Right. That's what I remember anyway. I don't. I couldn't tell you much about it. It's like sliders, isn't it? Yeah, there's like something to do with par- a parallel universe or something. Um, getting back to our dear friend J.H. Wyman. Yeah, he was a writer on Fringe for a few seasons, and then he seemed to get bumped up into a showrunner role. From what I was reading, it seems like when he came on, the show didn't quite know what it wanted to be. And uh, at least in the interviews I read, he certainly credits himself with kind of like finding what the show was and kind of building it forward into the mythology it built in the later seasons. I can't speak to how accurate that is, but that seems to be how he feels he came on and as a showrunner helped the show. Right. So he got the opportunity afterward to sort of follow up Fringe with a new show, and he came up with Almost Human. Uh, You know, it's a pretty straightforward show, obviously, like near future, cops and robbers, you throw a robot in there and some uh, cool technology. And, you know, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward show. Yeah. It's interesting. I was reading about what he sort of his inspirations were, and he does talk a lot about like Isaac Asimov and Philip K. Dick. But every time he referenced them, he sort of talked about how some of the writing he felt was very um, not dystopic, but very dark, dark ideas for the future. And he really wanted to make something that was positive and sort of like had a bright outlook on the future. Right. Which is interesting. I wouldn't have thought that about this show, but after kind of reading it and watching these episodes, it's like. It is true. This isn't a very glum, depressing look at like what's to come, which I think you see in like so many dark mirrors and like things today. So it's kind of a nice change of pace, actually. The pilot I thought was pretty dark, at least in terms of even how it looked. You know, we had talked about how much it looked like Blade Runner, but uh, there was a lot of night scenes. It was raining and they've clearly actually physically lit the show. I think it's almost always in the daytime now. And I don't think there's been any rain or anything like that. So maybe that was a bit of a a decision after the pilot yeah i i mean i think it was more tonally but sure also this lights got brighter <laughs> i know you mean tonally I, I, i'm not a dummy <laughs> but i just think that there maybe we're also trying to visually change the look of the show i'm agreeing with you and you're and you're being a jerk well that's true i am i am being a jerk it's funny uh, a lot of the interviews i read regarding this show were obviously around the pilot coming out and almost everyone was peppering him with questions about Blade Runner and how it looked like Blade Runner. Right. And it's, you know, hard not to. It does look like that a lot. But as I think as we're seeing in these new episodes, the Blade Runner stuff is really only in those like kind of seedy parts of town. Like the rest of the things we've seen in in these two episodes, especially like there's some great like Vista shots of BC and Vancouver where it was filmed. They're like quite gorgeous, actually. Like it's, it's a pretty not Blade Runnery show in many ways, in, in a lot of ways. Did they say what city this is supposed to be? Is this LA? No, I don't know if they have said what city this is going to be. And what's funny is we didn't bring it up in the first episode, and there's been very little sort of building of location. But I'm pretty sure at some point in one of those first two episodes, they talked about a wall and there being something beyond the wall of the city. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, and I, I'm very curious because it came up and then it hasn't come up again. And I'm like, when are we going to get back to this wall that apparently surrounds the city? You know when? Probably never. Never? You don't think so? No. You think that's one of the things they wrote out of the pilot and then just left one line in? The weirder things have happened, you know? Well, I guess we'll find out uh, as we get further into this show. But uh, I'm hoping we'll hear more about that wall. I want to know what's on the other side. Hmm. I'm not as invested, I guess. All right. Well, you want to get into the episodes? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Here's the IMDb summary for episode 6, Arrhythmia. Kenix and Dorian respond to a suspicious death at a hospital where, before having a fatal cardiac arrest, a man claimed someone was trying to kill him and inexplicably knew his exact time of death. That summary is courtesy of Anonymous. I think it's the same Anonymous that was writing all those other ones. The more I see Anonymous, the more I'm pretty sure these are just television, gu- like TV guide. Someone's picked up their TV guide and right. then 
transfer transferred it to IMDb. It, what's weird is that anyone would take the effort at all to do this to update these sort of things, but then to do it and then not want credit for it. They know how pointless it is what they're doing. Well, I guess maybe if you're just copy pasting, you you don't feel you deserve credit. Right, right. They don't want to get nailed by the uh, plagiarism police. People on the internet are very respectful. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, you do have a point. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that, that really is kind of the opening of this episode is we, we start off in this uh, futuristic hospital where people are in line to talk to holographic doctors. I like that. Do you like it? I mean, it's very fun and futury. It reminded me a little of like, I don't know, like an idiocracy or something. Right. They actually do the technology pretty well in this show. They do scenes where they always, you know, show you how futuristic things are. And, and I could see that eventually you'd be talking to like a digital version of a, uh, a doctor as a way to streamline weight lines and stuff. I really do think the tech they're doing is not too futury, and like you're right, I doubt all of it will come true. But it does feel kind of a little tech worry where if you jump forward twenty years, well, we probably see some of this. Yeah, we're still gonna have pens. Are you? Yeah, you're really upset they took your pens away. Yeah, it's weird. How are you writing your Christmas cards to exactly. all your friends and family? You're doing it like he does, and you're just swiping things up and down, and then text is appearing. <laughs> Um, what I liked is one of the holographic doctors starts uh, malfunctioning and like glitching out and a guy in line gets really annoyed well wouldn't you get annoyed of course this is, you wait in line all that time for your uh, diagnosis gingivitis that sets us into the episode right there's a guy talking to this doctor she's giving a diagnosis she sort of starts digging out whatever you want to say and then a guy runs in with a with a gun right yeah the, uh, the guy runs in with a gun he's demanding to see a surgeon he like basically knows he's going to have a heart attack and in Cantonese he even seems to know the exact time his death will happen and of course uh, at that moment the clock strikes midnight on his heart I guess and yeah. he just drops dead in the hospital and we kind of kick off our case of the week. So it makes you think that he's either like a time traveler or he can tell the future. Although Luke let's say you know your heart's going to give out at 319 don't you think you try to get to the hospital a little earlier like he really waited Traffic. the last minute. Traffic. Traffic. Well, even that. Give yourself an extra hour. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. It is just like the start of the last episode where the man was just running away from the magic bolt that was chasing him. And he's just like, it's going to kill me. Yeah. Everyone in the future knows they're going to die. Well, and it's also, it's just that thing of, you know, obviously it's a TV show. It's a cold open. But it is one of the things where a lot of this could have been solved by him just getting there in the morning, waiting, calmly talking to the doctor and explaining what, what you know, what we'll find out as the episode goes on. But anyway... That's not exciting, so... That's not a case of the week. Yeah, there you go. We catch up with Kenix and Dorian as they... As sort of another car scene as they drive to the, like, hospital for to investigate this crime. Nothing much happens here, but there's uh, actually a fun little scene between them where uh, Kenix runs a red light, and uh, Dorian kind of gives him an earful about obeying the law. And Kenix, you know, he's a real sarcastic guy, says, well, why don't you just give me a ticket? And uh, Dorian's whole face like lights up with little lights in his in his head, and he's like, "There you go, I just gave you one." Yeah, they're still playing the little, um, I guess, the buddy cop sort of thing back and forth. You know, one's a stickler for the rules, one's a renegade. Why they're fighting? Cute. One both right. I really like their relationship. It's very fun. Yeah, I, I like it too. It is, you know, and we'll probably talk about this as the show goes on. Yeah, something too. I think one of the points you made earlier when you're talking about the the creator of the show, the show still, and I don't know if it's going to find its legs as we go, but it does get the sense sometimes that it's trying to be a couple different things and maybe not always jiving like there's parts of it i really like and then there's parts i'm like oh guys just i don't care about this but is this a, a csi show or is this like a buddy comedy or is this a whatever and they haven't quite solidified that yet so i'm hoping in the next couple episodes it will uh kind of find its legs i am surprised you're not more excited about how the robot's face lights up no i like that I like, I'm, I'm more excited about, like, I want to see his skin come off. I actually think it's a nice little detail that they have, um, basically on the side of all the, uh, the androids' heads, uh, like, just on the, like, from their forehead down to their chin, um, a little light goes up to show you kind of they're working on stuff. Yeah, like, subdermally, like, just underneath the skin, it kind of yeah. lights up, and it's blue or red or something. I've never actually seen that, I don't think, in another science fiction. This show does their technology well when it's more subtle. I think they, they really nailed it out of the park, and this was one of them that they do really well. I know how you love robots and their inner working, so I assume I this do. would be a big, a big upswing for you. Well, we're going to get two robots real quick. It's true. They arrive at the hospital, and uh, what they kind of determine when they get there is the dead man had a biomechanical heart, 
and uh, there was no record of the transplant he ever received. So this is sort of a black market heart he's gotten. Mm-hmm. And of course, they find on the black market heart that it's been modded slightly so that it can be shut off remotely. Essentially, someone's selling black market hearts, and then people have to pay every month. And if they don't, their hearts get turned off. It's a real extortion ring. I actually thought this was a pretty good racket. What'd you think of that? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a pretty good crime. I think this is one of the not the other one, like the magic bullet one was okay, but this one felt like the most like an interesting future crime that I'm like I w- I was like, "Oh, that's cool, an interesting idea that's very cool and would make a good crime show." Yeah, I thought so too. I think so far this was one of the better plot lines we've seen and just that I thought that's actually a really good idea. You're selling organs to people, but then you're essentially charging them like exorbitant insurance on it um and i i thought oh that's a that that actually does seem like a mafia technique of the future yeah it, it fits it fits the profile of the show pretty well yeah. but of course as you mentioned while they're at the hospital they happen to bump into another robot uh, another drn series synthetic who uh has been decommissioned and sort of i guess reprogrammed to fix hospital equipment so essentially another dorian is working at the hospital and dorian's real bummed about it i thought that's not such a bad job well, I mean, we'll kind of hear a little bit about this in the future, in, in a little bit later in the episode, but essentially Dorian remembers when he was deactivated and how sad he was not to be a cop anymore. So when he sort of sees, uh, I guess, a brother, he feels bad this guy isn't, isn't doing what he was designed to do. He's not meeting his potential. Yeah. But thankfully, the robot's just getting off work. Yeah. Yeah. And he just like, before we know it, he is in the car. There's He joins them and he's like... I'm now going to join join you guys. Actually, Dorian does most of the talking. The other version of him kind of just uh, sits in the back like a puppy. Yeah, basically he invites him on a ride along so he can uh, catch up on the old police days. Now, the Dorian u- Dorian and this DRN unit are played by the same actor, so they are, you know, the same person. What are we going to call this other DRN unit? Dorian 2? DRN unit? Yeah, Dorian 2, I think's good. How do we how do we distinguish between them? Yeah, Dorian and Dorian too. Well, th- you know, there's a scene I'm going to ask you later on. Uh, it's coming up. I actually don't know which one was involved in the scene, so I'll have to ask you because I couldn't tell because they're both also wearing like pretty much the same clothing. Right, right, right. I give one a yellow sweater, am I right? <laughs> well, it's kind of nice because in this episode, because there are two robots, we get a lot of fun robot stuff. I mean, this has to have been your favorite episode so far. Oh, yeah, I liked it. If there's one complaint I have of it, and of course I have to have one because I'm, I'm a whinger, but... I wish they had done more with this. I think there's more scenes that you could have had with the two robots. Dorian 2 spends most of the episodes sitting in the back of the car. Well, I mean, you kind of get to see some some stuff about how they work. Like, they talk about how not all the DR units were actually defective, and they'd created a test to kind of test for which ones were faulty. Right. The, the Luger test. Yeah, the Luger. That's right, yeah. They said it was to weed out the faulty DRNs. Yeah, very much in line with a Blade Runner. And even they sort of talk about, like, upgrades that these robots can get that, like, kind of help them, I guess, get better. Like, uh, at some point, uh, Dorian 2 asks Dorian 1 if he's had the thermal upgrade. And uh, Dorian 1 says, yeah. And he goes, check this out. And wh- wh- how does he impress Dorian 2? Is that when he takes his eyeball out? Yep. Pops his eyeball out. Yeah. And then it accidentally drops it into uh, John's coffee. So John can give the old, like, I'm getting too old for this. Because that's how he spends all his day, just being constantly grumpy. It is very funny to watch them drop an eyeball into his coffee. Also interesting, apparently that eyeball can work as a remote camera. Is that the shot you get? Well, no, that's what they that's what they mention. It's just like, yeah, you can take our, we can take our eyeballs out now because we can use them as remote cameras for police work. <laughs> that, that seems weird. That seems like a weird, uh, like, hold on, just take it and throw it, throw it over a fence. You just hide it on a shelf somewhere. It's like, <laughs> no one will notice an eyeball. Yeah, wh- why are you missing an eyeball? You're not recording this from another part of the room, are you? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> um, another little fun bit we got to see is apparently these uh, DRN models can imitate anyone's voice. Oh, really? Is that a thing? Yeah. Well, uh, there's one moment where they leave Dorian two at a desk while they're doing some stuff in the office, and he starts Im- he starts imitating Kenix and uh, for the amusement of Dorian one. I don't even remember that. It was really good. It was kind of a fun idea that like they could just like mimic their voices perfectly. Huh. I'll have to go back and watch that. I, I missed that scene. I must be typing some notes and I missed it. The other thing that kind of came up with this episode is that the DRNs are very, very good at annoying Kennex. Yeah. Uh, they're both sitting in the car driving around making like lip smacking noises and like make it, make it, making sounds with their mouths. Yeah. Why were they doing that? It was just purposely to annoy him? I don't know. I think we've seen it before. Like it's like a little tick they have when they're bored. They like 
do things, and uh, it just annoys old Kenix, old grumpy Kenix. You too have a lot in common. Me and him? Yeah. Well, if I was driving in a long car ride and you're making weird mouth noises, I'd also be irritated, yes. But I don't know if, if that's, I think that's a normal reaction. <laughs> By the way, I keep calling him John and you're calling him Kenix. What should we call, we call him? Kenix, his last name? Oh, I, I mean, his full name's John Kenix. I'm sure people will follow along. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try to remember it's Kenix now. Because I can never remember his last name. What did I call him earlier? Zorg or something? Yeah, I, I don't even know. It's, it's just words you strung together like a robot in a car moving his lips. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty good. One of the things Dorian's done for Dorian too, though, on this little ride along is he's uh, re-uploaded kind of his police training and given him back his old case files. They're really having him be like the stickler for the rules and stuff. And he really breaks the rules here, I guess, to show how much it means to him that he wants to be this, I guess, savior is the right word, could be the savior for the guy and kind of bring him back to his potential. But yeah, he he gives him back all his police files so that he's essentially a police officer again. Well, he certainly has all, all the training he once was meant to have. And I mean, when Kenix had run that light earlier, he did sort of bully Dorian by saying, like, why don't you ever break the rules? So I think this is sort of his way of showing, look at me, I can break the rules. But this backfires a little bit. It, it does set off uh, some unintended consequences. They, like, pull over at a light and Dorian, too, looks at the window and sees some guy across the street getting into a car. And I guess his, his case files tell him it's a it's a man wanted for armed robbery. So all we see is the door open and his robot just like sprinting across the road, tackling a man. Yeah. And it, and basically it's it's that he hasn't updated his file. So this guy's already uh, served his time and he's, in, you know, now an innocent person. And, and they have to have this like real apology. But it's also like a moment for, for Kenix to be like, I told you so. Well, it also sets off a great chain reaction because he knocks the guy out of the car. The car rolls down the hill hits a fire hydrant, which shoots into the sky, hits a, fl- a, a drone that happens to be flying by. That drone careens out of control and destroys one of these MX unit cops by slamming it into a car. And the woman who is getting a ticket just like turns to, turns to them and says, can I go? Yeah, it was a real uh, uh, beginning of Superman 3 sort of moment. It was a fun, very weird little like Ruby or uh, Goldberg machine getting set off. And, um, right. I think, is this a gag now for every episode? Are we going to destroy an MX unit every single episode? I think so. We really should, if we had known ahead of time, we could have been like having little dings going off and keeping charge of these. But uh, yeah, MX units can get destroyed every episode. And every episode, there's going to be like a big shootout. Oh, there's definitely going to be a big shootout every episode. Yeah. But this kind of, we should get back to the case they're on. And that's what the episode kind of does is... They, they head to a biomechanical uh, organization that builds these hearts, a place called uh, Vastrol. And they interview a woman who, uh, she's sort of in charge of administering who gets hearts and where they go. And they talk to the, her about this dead man's heart. And she kind of lets them know it used to belong to another dead person. That's who it's registered to. Right. So they know that the, the organs are being sold on the black market. Yeah. And apparently you're supposed to, once you die, the funeral home is supposed to destroy the uh, biomechanical organs you have. But nobody, there's no one does any checkups on that. Like apparently the funeral home just sends a letter saying, yep, it's done. Yeah, it's a real loophole there. So uh, they head off to the funeral home where this heart was supposed to be destroyed. And the uh, the funeral director there uh, kind of readily admits that he, he sold about a hundred of these organs to a doctor. And what I thought was kind of interesting is he gets into here, this funeral director, kind of the uh, ethics of this, because it is against the law to resell these organs. But he's kind of like, it's only against the law because these corporations force it to be the law. Like, there's no reason we can't recycle these perfectly good organs. So right. sort of like makes a case for what he's doing is sort of a good thing. And it's not a bad point because you do get the sense um, that the corporation they went to speak to originally is this sort of faceless bureaucratic uh, very well compensated company and these guys could just you know be doing a sort of robin hood-esque sort of you know for the people certainly and well the people who buy these black market organs it's not that they don't want a legal one uh, they do say like their insurance won't pay for it so these companies won't even like consider them right so it definitely sort of sets up kind of some iffy ethics though i guess uh blackmailing people into paying every month for your heart is probably that's that's probably where the ethics fall to one side but <laughs> I do like, though, that when they talk to that guy, uh, the guy in the crematorium, what is he? Funeral director? That's what I called him. Yeah. I like when they're like, hey, what happened to those uh, hearts? And he was just like, I sold it. 
they barely had to interrogate him at all. He just gave it up right away. And I like that. I'm like, yeah, cut to the chase. He's not even lying. I mean, his point was that he doesn't feel like he has anything to lie about. But I like how fast that happened. Yeah, he gave it up real quick. It was it was very good. It, like, in fact, he just allows them to set up a sting for the doctor who they sell the organs to. Like, they just hang out out, out front. He calls the doctor who sends his courier. And then they follow this courier back to abandoned office where the doctor is literally in the middle of a transplant. <laughs> They're operating on a woman who we've seen earlier. He was getting a heart transplant, and she is not happy to be uh, woken up in the middle of surgery. Well, I, she basically, they've basically killed her. She can't live without a good heart, and they've stopped this heart transplant. Well, yeah, so she has a point. I mean, don't get on the black market, lady. Get some good insurance. Yeah, well, I know. She seemed like she was doing fine. Like, I blame Obamacare. <laughs> I want to know why you thought she was doing fine. Getting a transplant in a dirty hospital. Anyway, they, they raid this this uh, black market hospital and sort of arrest everybody. And then they're they're interrogating the people they've arrested. There's a, there's a courier who transported the heart, this guy who looks like Rasputin. Yeah, he um, does. I think they even call him Rasputin. I think so, too. <laughs> they, they cast him well. And uh, he kind of lets them know that the, uh, the blackmail ring, this extortion ring, it's very carefully compartmentalized. He's never met anybody. He just kind of like receives money in order. So he doesn't really know who anyone is. Doesn't he say, though, he gets his money in Bitcoin or something like that? Well, yeah, Bitcoin comes up in this episode a couple times. Yeah, which is funny because I don't think Bitcoin will be a thing in 2048. I mean, it's a thing right now. Yeah, barely. <laughs> it was the most expensive <laughs> cryptocurrency this year or 2018. Cryptocurrency is not, it's not becoming. Anyways, this is a longer conversation. You don't believe in cryptocurrencies? No, not at all. Jordan. You're an old, old man. No, no. It's it's crap for like a bunch of kids to like buy video games and stuff. It's not a real thing. <laughs> That's right. I said it. It's not a real thing. All right. All right. Calm down. I'll get the kids off the lawn. I don't think it's about being old. It's just, it's a scam anyways. <laughs> um, they're also interrogating the doctor who, uh, he also doesn't know much about the extortion ring. Like he's implied to be the leader, but once they kind of tell him that what he's doing is installing hearts with these mods that kill people he's surprised like he thought he what he was doing was actually something good he thought he was literally just helping recycle organs you'd have to be a little bit dumb to know that it wasn't you know he at least knows it's on the gray side of illegal so morally i guess he might have a point i guess the point is doesn't know about the extortion part and he'd like to give up the ringleader but he's never seen her face before so he can't really help them either they just know her name is karen that's right. Karen is her name. What an evil name. Karen. Popular internet meme right now, too. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. Memes and Bitcoin. You're very, uh, got your finger on the pulse of today's youth, huh? Today's youth. You mean just culture. Yeah, culture? <laughs> this culture today. Mm-hmm. You just like puzzles. Puzzles and hard candy. That's right. Werther's. <laughs> um, we briefly get a uh, flashback to the extortion ring or a flashback. We get a, we get to see what's happening at the extortion ring. And uh, there's kind of a full control panel full of clocks counting down. Uh, a woman calls in and tells uh, tells the man who answers the phone that uh, it's time to shut down the ring. The cops are on to them now. Mm-hmm. So all these people whose hearts are counting down, they're just going to die when it runs out. And uh, kind of the big reveal here is is the funeral home guy is behind these clocks. Yeah. So he's obviously not led on to as much he knows more about this than he said he does uh i was a little confused because they do the sting with him right the sting operation and he and he's very um cooperative and he's he's essentially letting other people take the fall for him but then he just keeps working even though they like it didn't arrest him for that they probably would have charged him with a lesser crime right but they're just like yeah you keep, keep working now like they, they know he's going to go back to selling organs i think this is maybe one of one of one of the weaker points is in their crime and the characters motivations in these crimes we were seeing in these episodes they don't always like make a lot of sense because yeah he kind of just goes back to work at extortion ringing even though he's now well aware they're onto him right but essentially the woman tells him stop resetting everyone's hearts uh we're calling this off and he says he'll come meet her at her place and we we know that basically uh bad news bad news is on the way for everyone who's gotten an illegal transplant recently yeah they uh they all basically just start dropping dead in the street, and we kind of see our detectives going from crime scene to crime scene of all these all these people with illegal hearts just laying dead in the street. This is actually a scene where they they reach into one of the victim's socks and they pull out a USB drive with Bitcoin. That's this. Is, That's right. Yeah. This is where they're gonna they're gonna pay their they're gonna pay their blackmail money with Bitcoin in their sock. Which, to be fair, is what you'd pay with Bitcoin. 
It's used a lot in, like, if you're buying organs and stuff, that makes sense. Yeah, black market organs, very important. Yeah, buying, I don't know, some t-shirt and a video game. You know, a great way to uh, take a hit out on somebody. Yeah, exactly. It's, un- it's not traceable. Remember when I sold those uh, hot pants in that video game for $100? <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. That's a good time. It's good memories. That was good for me. Uh, the internet, Jordan, it's the future. Yeah, that's true. Um... <laughs> Basically, we, is this we get into the big gunfight? They kind of like, they're getting in now to try to get all the bad guys? Well, they haven't solved the crime yet. They just know that everyone's dropping dead. And uh, this is actually, Detective Stahl kind of solves kind of one clue in this piece in that she picks up one of the victim's wrists and they have sort of, uh, you know, the Metaclerk bracelets? Mm-hmm. Uh, the victim has a Metaclerk bracelet tattooed into his arm. That's I guess right. that's how it works in the future. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that's what it was or if it was like some sort of digital thing. But yeah, that's what, it looked like a tattoo, though. I think it's kind of like a tattoo. It's like a QR code, but uh, for Metaclerk bracelets. She right. scans it with her little, her super tiny, thin phone. It's so thin, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it was really thin. And essentially what she, she finds out is this victim and then apparently all the victims who have passed away so far... They'd all applied for transplants with uh, Vastril, the uh, biomech company, but they've all been denied. But they were all denied by the same administrator, the woman they interviewed earlier. So they sort of rush back to the Vastril building. She didn't do it because the doctor doesn't recognize her face, but they realize it could, if it wasn't the administrator, it must have been her assistant, Giselle. Yeah, Giselle, who's been in one scene. I know, we won't even see her again because when they, when they get to her house to arrest her, all that's left of her is a warm spot on the floor and chlorine from cleaning up her blood. So there we are. I did like when they break into her house, uh, Dorian and, and Kenix uh, use a little laser to cut through her deadbolt. Oh, I, I have to watch that again. What did they have in her laser? Was it like a little pen? Well, you actually don't see it from their side of the door. You see it from from the inside of the door. Oh. And you see like a laser like slice through the door and then you get kicked open. I'll, I'll go rewatch it. I really got to stop typing while I'm watching these episodes because like scenes go by and then I look up. I'm like, yeah, it couldn't be that important. <laughs> um, but finding her missing and this sort of like spot in the floor where someone's clearly come and killed her at her home. Basically, Dorn and Kenix sort of piece together like, hey, that's a good question. Other people must have died from this extortion ring. Like not everyone must have paid their bills and we've never found bodies with organs in them before. How do you make a body disappear? And they're like, oh, yeah, you're a funeral home director with a future cremation machine. Oh, and we didn't talk about it. The, the um, cremation uh, machine, I guess, is uh, it's really cool looking. And they show like a body getting done. And I thought the, the effect looked really good on it. It's just like a big old tanning booth. That like instantly makes someone into ash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like a tanning booth, right? That's too hot a setting, but yes. Okay, I'm doing it wrong. Oh, can we mention that for most of this episode, the DRN metal is still sitting in the car? I think through all this, he comes out once to be in the police, a police department. For the rest of the episodes, he's in the car. Honestly, that was my major complaint to this episode. I was like, it was such a fun scenario of having two of them. And they seemed like either there just wasn't enough time to do anything with it, or they didn't really know where to go with it. So they're like, I ah, just, just put him in the car for a while. It's true. Dorian 2 is mostly in the back of the car to sort of add to some character development for Dorian 1, but doesn't really get involved. I mean... What happens from here is they, they basically go back to the funeral home to raid it and arrest the funeral home director. And even here, Dorian offers Dorian 2 a gun and says, do you want to come in and help us? And Dorian 2 is just like, no, thank you. I'm not a cop anymore. I can't do police work. And I thought that was setting up for he's going to bust in and save the day. Yeah, he just stays in the car. Well, that was my question because we'll go through this real quick. But, you know, there's the usual shootout the show has, blah, blah, blah. Is a guy getting away? And Dorian, like, robocops through the wall and just, like, breaks through the wall and grabs the guy and, like, gets him at the end. And I was like, wait, which Dorian is that? Because I couldn't really tell. And I thought maybe that was the thing that, like, you know, he's going to get away. And old Dorian, too, came and saved the day. But I guess it wasn't him. No, uh, that's that's exactly it. Kenix is chasing him through the hallways of this, I guess, funeral home. It looks more like a big office. But he's he's kind of getting away. And I like that you called it robocopping. It was far more like Dorian Kool-Aid manned through a wall. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. It's out of nowhere. This guy's running through the hallway and then Dorian just like bursts through a wall out of apropos to nothing and just like grabs him. And he went, anyone thirsty? Was that, I don't know if that was a, uh, what's the name? Pac-Man? No, what's his name? Kool-Aid man. Kool-Aid man. Yeah. Oh man, I don't know what's happening to me. Anyways, he had a catchphrase. Who knows what it was? We're recording late tonight. It's, it's tough. Yeah, sorry. Pac-Man. But essentially, that's case closed. They kind of have closed down this organ ring. 
there's a brief moment where uh, they they announce, which is funny to me, after nothing, that uh, Vasitril is going to give everyone a free organ. Oh yeah, they had to put that little thing in, like, don't worry, everyone, everyone's fine. I know all those people died, but from now on, everything's good. Everything's going to be just fine. They just didn't want any bad publicity. Hey, we should mention one real quick thing though. They had to shoehorn in the little bit of love story that you're supposed to feel between those two characters, but all they can fit in is like a 10 second clip, like 10 second scene where the two, the, I don't even know her name, the other detective, the female detective, detective stall, detective stall. And they like, I don't know. They talk about something and then they look at each other for like a beat too long. And that's it. I'm like, Oh wow. They must be falling in love. Well, yeah, this just kind of wraps up the episode is there's, there's a few character wrap ups basically is uh, Dorian talks to Dorian too at the, at the precinct. Well, they're wrapping up the case and Dorian too says he's been looking through his old case files and remembering a time he saved a young boy during a case and how, how that was the most like important connection he ever had in his life. And it, he's so grateful to have that moment to get a chance to look at these old files he doesn't have in his mind anymore and, and remember this moment he had. And as they return him to work, Dorian one says, I, I've had to erase all your police files and all your police programming, but I, I've left that kid in your mind for you. Right. So you'll still like have that to go with you. And it's, it's kind of the emotional tie-up to this uh, sort of story. Although there's a, there's a cute moment where uh, uh, Captain Maldonado looks out into the uh, bullpen of the precinct and sees there's two Dorians sitting at one desk, and all you hear is her yell, Dorian! <laughs> yeah, like a principal and like... Uh... Uh, the kid's done something bad. That's funny. It was uh, it was a, it was a very funny moment because they both went at the precinct earlier, and I was like, I'm surprised no one's more upset by this. Well, we, we had to wait for it. Yeah, they, 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 you had to wait for that payoff at the end of the episode. When I was reading about uh, Wyman, the creator of the show, it's interesting. He talked about how on Fringe he did this, and this is kind of I think how he approached the shows on this one too. As he was talking about, it, is it seems like he was actually a little less interested in maybe the plot mechanics of it he seemed to talk about how like the plot the like crime of the week for him was more a metaphor he used it as a metaphor for the emotional journey he wanted the character on like he he used it as a as a tool for that i think what i've noticed in these last few episodes we've watched like this one you know the crime's there and it's not a bad crime but it is it can feel a little perfunctory at times but what clearly what he wants to do is because we end up having a lot more wrap-up on dorian and dorian 2 and giving dorian 2 this memory back and like dorian 1 breaking a rule to help someone and i think we saw that in the previous in the previous episode too with uh Kenix. sort of the episode with the magic bullet was maybe more about him coming to terms with something than it was maybe the crime itself right and i think as we watch more of these shows it definitely feels clearer to me that well you know the crime drives the plot every episode seems to wrap up it seems to have a longer code at the end where he wraps up sort of what emotionally the character was supposed to learn or the journey they were supposed to go on. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a perfect thing, but right. we're kind of seeing how his intentions are and, and maybe why some of his plot mechanics don't, are, can be a little clunky. It's it's maybe because he cares less about them and right. he's trying to maybe do more for, some, for the character in the episode. In terms of the like crime of the week, I thought this was a much better than the one, the one we're going to talk about the next episode. So um, I don't know if that's a nice link to the next one. Sure. Well, let me let me get into this next episode for you. I am to be summary for episode ten, perception. We were right. This is new. What is it? The drug found in the blood of our victims contains a metabolite, the breakdown compound that indicates the presence of a drug or toxin. Like what? Up or down? A euphoric, trampolstim, hallucinogen? What are we talking about? Good question. I thought chromes didn't do drugs. Generally, they don't. And that doesn't mean they don't experiment. They just don't have addiction issues. Those genetic defects get corrected in the womb. Well, these two girls definitely experimented. Apparently, three girls did. The same compound was also found in the blood of a girl who died seven months ago. When Kenix and Dorian investigate the simultaneous and sudden deaths of two genetically enhanced, or chrome, children, a fatal dose of the perfect designer drug appears to be the cause. Uh, this was also courtesy of Anonymous. What did they call, um, oh, I can't remember, in A Space Above and Beyond, what did they call the people that were, like, grown in tubes? Tanks. These are not quite tanks, but there's a similar sort of idea. Although, they don't seem to have uh, quite the, um, they're not ostracized from society, these uh, genetically modified people. No, no, they're, um, it came up briefly with Detective Stahl, but essentially, if you're wealthy in the future you had your children genetically modified and 
they're referred to as chromes. Yeah, that makes sense. You have the money, you can make perfect children. Why would you not, right? And and they really show in this episode as we'll go through it. It's a real uh, step up for some kids in terms of their education. Yeah, societal elites now are they're better than you, not just because they have money and opportunity. They're also like literally physically better than you. Yeah. And this is a real Vancouver opening, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, lots of shots of the coast, lots of like beautiful highway shots of, of highways running along the ocean. It was quite nice, actually. But the case of the week basically this week is two of these genetically improved private school girls die one is in a forest kind of like looking around at trees the other is in this i guess big concert hall where she's like performing a con like in her mind performing a concert and they both kind of have we kind of see what they see i guess mm-hmm. they both kind of have Jordy laforge vision uh you see almost like math problems and stats on like what they're looking at and it's not quite clear but it's just like numbers go and little like graphics and little outlines of stuff but it the, the basic idea for the viewer is they're seeing things like almost like a robot would sort of yeah really augmented reality style kind of things and and they both seem quite clearly high on something and uh, just as they're kind of all getting whipped into a frenzy one of them is like surrounded by playful bees and one of them is like singing this concerto and there's music notes everywhere they both just like drop dead suddenly I thought they died from enjoyment. <laughs> Didn't it look like it? I mean, you're not wrong. They they did die at, at a real high, a real peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be the crime is like, who killed these girls? Right. Before we get into kind of the crime of the week, I'm going to just do something really quickly here. This particular episode dives into some of the serialized season arc elements. That's right. Yeah. They don't really tie into the episode itself properly. So I'm just going to let's get into them real quick and just lay out these little beats here because they're pretty simple for the most part. But do run the course of the episode. Essentially, Canix is kind of caught by Captain Maldonado and he's, he's taking those tiny pills he's been using, which we come to find out this time. They help him drop these memories in his head Mm -hmm. i don't know how that works because he also goes to that uh what is it called recollectionist what do they call them i guess the recollectionist must be like prescribing him these pills and right he says they open up memory clusters Mm. you know memory clusters yeah anyways i'm fine with that it was just was one of those things where like basically they need to have him like almost addicted to these drugs too right yeah and it's kind of causing some problems he keeps having flashbacks mid case like at one point he he manages to crash their car mid flashback and uh dorian's ear gets knocked off basically there's a car crash and a big pole comes through and and hits him in the in the side of the head i don't know if it just like cut his face or it actually knocked his ear off i'm not it's not clear either but yeah it's some big pipe smashed through the front window and causes some damage to poor dorian yeah. But basically with these pills and another dangerous trip to the recollectionist, Kenix remembers that his ex-girlfriend Anna gave him a gift at some point and going through his very beautiful loft, he uh manages to find a Russian nesting doll she gave him that I guess he's forgotten about. It is a little bit like you just got to go, oh, "Okay, just wave your hands over it." But yeah. A, l- a little bit like that. He can't find anything suspicious about it, but he hands it over to uh, a CSI lady who works at the police station, a a woman named McGinnis, and then asks him to run some off-the-book tests for him. Didn't it feel weird that they added this character? Like, maybe she might come back later, but why didn't they just give it to the old Q guy that's been doing all the other stuff? It did seem funny that they sort of, because they really do imply, like, this is going to be a character you need need to keep track of. Yeah, and it's like, I, I assume it was like a scheduling issue and they just didn't have that actor or something. Yeah, it could be. Anyway, this uh, McGinnis, the CSI lady, eventually will call and tell him that uh, the Russian nesting doll has a listening device hidden in it and has been uploading information about him to someone. Every time you hear in like a TV show, it's like, it's a, it's a listening device. It's like, if, if someone just planted a listening device in my apartment, what are you going to hear? Me saying to myself? It's not like I'm going to be walking around talking like with confidential stuff, even if that was my job, you know? I mean, it's especially true for Kenix, who lives by himself and seems to have no friends at doesn't make a lot of sense that he'd be watering around, but I don't know. I mean, maybe his ex-girlfriend knows he mutters to himself a lot. Yeah, he just, he walks around just like, mm, mm. that's all he does, so. Syndicate. <laughs> exactly. Syndicate. Yeah, so it's like, oh, wow, I'm glad we tapped this guy. <laughs> um, there's a scene right at the end, too, which doesn't tie to the plot, but ties to the overarching stuff where an internal affairs guy shows up to interview Kinex. And he wears uh, Google glasses. Yeah, he's got kind of Google glasses on so he can read him. And, you know, they talk about the his whirlwind ro- romance with uh, Anna and how suspicious it was that the relationship moved along so quickly and asked him questions about how she got access to his police files. But the one thing I thought was interesting about that scene, and I'm sure we'll come back, is 
this inter- internal affairs guy he makes a veiled reference and says like look what happened to your father oh did he i did i missed that and at some point in the first episode Kenix referred to it which i thought was a throwaway line where he says in my dad's day you, you didn't get a robot partner i think they're building something underneath all of this about his father hmm it's not very clear and like you know they're really stringing along these sort of like overarching series long elements into like really small chunks in these episodes so it's it's hard to know for sure but i i clocked a few of them because I, I feel like they're going to come back hmm. anyway that that about wraps it up for that so we'll get back to this episode and kind of what's going on in it uh, back to the case of the two dead chromes the case of the two dead chromes i still think this should be called the super scouts this episode <laughs> you think that uh Kenix and dorian should have adopted all the private school children yeah yeah, and then for the rest of the show, they just they just keep giving it to that woman in the office who has nothing to do. They're like, oh, you take care of these 12 kids. Detective Stahl, we got to go on a case. Can you all look after these 12 kids we picked up? Oh, you know what? This, this mentions something about Detective Stahl, and you might have the answer for this. And uh, I, I know we'll get back to the episode in a second. But at one point, um, they want to go talk to the uh, Chrome parents. And uh, and they say to her, you should go talk to them. Uh, the the whoever's in charge lieutenant whatever her name is captain maldonado that's right captain maldonado she goes you should go talk to them because you're a chrome and uh and she feels like really weird about it. and what she says is um i wrote it down she goes uh i don't know if i should like i i, I find i rub them the wrong way and i was like what and then and then but like they didn't really answer that like what was it about her that was irritating to people i think what it is is it doesn't really come up i think there's maybe a veiled reference to it later but essentially, she's a chrome, which means she comes from a very well-to-do family. But she's kind of just chosen to be a cop. Oh, I see. Okay. I think she's just kind of like, they look at her like, like they think she thinks she's better than them. Or like just something rubs them the wrong way about her. Because like, she has every opportunity in the world. And she's like a detective who's below Kenix. Like, right. you could do better. <laughs> I just thought she was being like, oh, they hate me. And I was just like, are you just trying to avoid work? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. Anyways, back to it. Um, it is interesting. Detective Stahl gets a little more to do in this episode because she is herself a chrome. Yeah. Like, they, she sort of fills them in on this sort of backstory of this world. Like, these girls who died of this overdose or whatever it was, they're sort of like, I didn't think chromes did drugs. And she's like, oh, well, we don't have addiction issues. Like, we still like to experiment, but, like, we can't get addicted to drugs. Like, we're kind of perfect that way. And they sort of truck off to where the girls went to school, this uh, place called Mendel Academy, and sort of start looking around to see if they can find out what happened. And what they kind of discover is about a year ago, another girl who went to the school drowned. But uh, they also realized they found similar chemicals in her body, though at the time they didn't quite realize that it was drug-related. So they think all the kids are taking the same drug and having some sort of overdose. Mm-hmm. But the, the big surprise is the girl who drowned a year ago, she isn't a chrome, but she's a natural. Oh, yeah, that's what they call her, yeah. A natural. Uh, at Mandel Academy, apparently, there's a few naturals, people who weren't genetically modified, who excel in school, who get a who get a scholarship. They're basically, you know, kids who are plucked up and given a scholarship and sent to a school they don't belong to. I thought at first when they said natural, they were just referring to people who are not genetically modified, just like everyone else is just a natural. Oh, that's what I think. That's what it is. But didn't they? But I thought they meant natural. But like that was a designation for people who were not genetically modified, but still were really excelling. Oh, I think I think it was a reference to just like the general population. That's oh, okay. what chromes refer to them as. But because there's only like two girls in this entire school who are naturals, they're definitely like looked down upon. Right. I, I, let me just say, we're going to talk to a couple of these kids. Didn't you hate these kids? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, that's I think the idea, though. All the kids at this school are very like they're they're preppy kids from the other side of the lake or something from the night from the nice summer camp they're like and like one of these nerds movies they're like the bad guys with like the sweaters around their shoulders you just want to punch them all they're a bunch of snobs bunch of snobs not like the slobs kennix and dorian yeah that's right that's what the show was originally called us snobs and slobs oh makes sense yeah i can see why that's not funny at all (laughs) (laughs) keep it in keep it in um Kenix and Dorian go and uh, interviewed this drowned girl's mom and she kind of tells them about how after she died because she was a natural all her former chrome friends like kind of denied knowing her and these friends were specifically the two dead girls the music girl and the forest girl and she had a private investigator hired to try to get evidence that uh, they did in fact know her and this private eye I guess went out and got some tapes of them kind of admitting that they were friends with the drowned girl and that they they did know her 
But uh, when she went to submit these tapes to the police, they were erased by while well, they were on being transported to evidence. The implication is, I guess, that she was trying to further the case by hiring this PI. But even when the case files get to the police, they get erased because uh, the the rich people have so much influence. They can even like reach into the police force and kind of have things they don't want dredged up disappear. Right. right. Oh, but is it, you know what? Each time they interview the kids um, before before they go to talk to this mom of the natural girl, um, the kids just keep going. You wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand. And I thought that was going to be like a piece to the puzzle. Like there was this like thing that uh, this little secret, but it was really just them being pricks. Like you don't understand because you're dumb. Yeah, uh, there's a few interviews with these Chrome kids at this school. And it does seem like they're being cagey, like we're going to unravel some mystery by talking to them. But really, we never see most of them again. And it did feel like it was a mystery, but it turned out to just be like, oh, they're jerks. Like at some point, uh, one of they're like, do you do drugs? And uh, the kid's like, we don't technically do drugs. Like he kept like ca- like caveating it in such a way that like semantically yeah. he wasn't saying we do drugs until like Kenneth was like, all right. So what you're saying is you don't do drugs that are currently illegal. Yeah. They're just little jerks. That scene, I was just like, oh, I hate these kids. They are just little jerks. And while they're there at this uh, campus, they they do find some of the drug in the dorm. And they're able to take it back to the uh, pre-state and sort of figure out what it is. Is The drugs are designed specifically for an individual's DNA. Right. And that they're created. I actually thought this was kind of fun. Is they're created by a chem printer? Is that the little thing they keep? The little tiny cylinder tube thing? Oh, no. That's just a really cool place to keep your drugs. Oh, I didn't know what they kept showing. I'm like, what is that? Is that like a police tool? That was just a drug thing. I see. Yeah, yeah. It was just a, it was a little tube to keep your joint in, but uh, it would only open with your DNA. Which is useful. That's true. Um, but yeah, there's these chem printers that exist. And there's not very many of them, apparently, because they're like, good news. There are only a few of them. We should be able to track down the one that printed these drugs. And in fact, the the chem printer that created the drugs that killed the girls was a, was a chemulon. And the, <laughs> the chemulon. special feature of the chemulon is that uploads to the cloud all the drugs it designs yeah so they're very easily able to track down which one created the created these like designer drugs yeah it was a real easy way out of an episode and was getting a little long in the tooth i mean i didn't mind i'm like i'm like good i we don't need to like futz around any further yeah and so they go to this home of a an expelled mandel student uh his father had bought the chem printer to help make custom drugs for him as he was uh, quite sick. But his father's now dead and this kid has access to this uh, chem printer. So he's basically been designing this drug, which um, I think I have it written down here. Oh, yes. He's been designing the drug, which he calls feral. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it's a special drug that kind of um, gives people their maximum capacity like it's kind of like something that gets you high but it also like kind of like expands your mind man you're gonna see all the possibilities dude yeah you'll you end up uh being like one of those girls and uh dying of pleasure in, in the forest yeah and what we kind of learn is his printer he believes was hacked because the drugs that they printed for the girls were turned up like a thousand percent or something like they were right. just like way too strong is this where he comes to interview the dad and the dad brings up the digital lawyer yeah, exactly. What they kind of find out is this girl, the forest girl who died, her dad was the one who kind of erased all the erased all the tapes for the police force. They kind of are able to track down who knew the police the police force person who's supposed to take care of the evidence and he happens to know the dad of this dead forest girl and they go to interview him about what happened. And as they walk in, he he calls his lawyer and makes the lawyer like appear via hologram in the middle of his living room. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a fun little effect. It was it was a cute little effect. But once Kenix and Dorian kind of tell him that his his daughter was killed, not she didn't just OD, she was like murdered by someone. He he really comes clean. Like he sends his lawyer away immediately. Yeah. And he sort of reveals that, you know, he was covering up the death of the other girl because he wanted to save his daughter from scandal. But now it doesn't matter because she's dead. And that, you know, they a rift grew between them because the dead uh, his dead daughter didn't appreciate what he what he did for her. And that the drowned girl's mom had had warned them all that they'd pay for what they did to her daughter. Right. And so now we have a pretty good sense that uh, we know who's done these crimes. Yeah, it was the mom the whole time. (laughs) But we get a we get a brief interlude before we go before they go arrest the mom because the the kid who's expelled they reinterview him and he's got an encrypted image stick that sort of has a video of the drowned girl and 
it's her giving kind of i guess her her final testament before she kills herself but essentially what happened is she took this feral drug and it, it did unlock her capacity but what it really showed to her instead of like showing her everything she could do it just sh- showed her that she could never be as good as a chrome right it, w- it was kind of revealing to her that no matter how hard she worked no matter how much her mom pushed her she she would never be as good as her friends at this school and that's why she sort of walked into the ocean and killed herself and and her her mom basically pushed her to it and the mom weirdly doesn't seem to they make her watch that video and she's like no it's not my fault she like won't it she's just like no no not my fault to be fair i mean she's the, also the type of person who, who took matters into her own hands so i guess she has her own sort of moral view of things she's a real karen (laughs) she is a real karen um see you know the meme uh and after kind of like saying it's not her fault she you know she basically comes clean and says yes i killed those girls i hired a hacker to get into the system and like overdose them and that's how they died and i'm the one who did it and i was really curious i'm like don't you guys need to find that hacker still or anything yeah, don't worry about it. It doesn't really. They, they kind of just wrap up the case now. And um, where this sort of ties into the idea of the character's emotional arc, like that being maybe his core concern to this, is when they're, uh, after they've arrested Drowned Girl's mom, let's call her Karen, because now I can't remember her name. Yeah, we'll just say Karen. They go to her house and in her room, she's basically got this like, you know, in a detective show where you have a bulletin board and there's like, You've pinned photos and you've pinned notes yeah. and you run strings between them all. In her room, she's got the same thing, but it's all just like digital post-it notes all over her house. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Sort of to show that she's been obsessed with the like the crime and who killed her daughter and whose fault it is that her daughter died. She had to go to the art store and get that digital yarn to go between the pictures. But for Kenix, he has the exact same kind of detective board at his house this digital detective board where he's trying to solve what happened to his ex-girlfriend and kind of the emotional journey for him is like this whole episode was necessary for him to get to the point where he's just like oh maybe being obsessed with this thing isn't good and we yeah. kind of see him at the end of the episode tear down his own wall and kind of like allow himself to let go a bit and i think it's supposed to show i think that he's going to stop going to the recollectionist maybe and stop doing these like memory cluster things yeah i think that's the point i'm i'm sure it will come back in some way where that this sort of B plot or C plot, I suppose, uh, will come back. But I think you're right. I think it's supposed to be that his little, his emotional journey is that he's not going to be as obsessed as he was before. And I hope it's true because I, I do feel like the recollectionist and these flashbacks have kind of run their course. They, they didn't work super well, like the idea of like what he's trying to remember in these flashbacks. So it's kind of nice that we might not have to see them anymore. Yeah. Um, but that, that wraps up the two episodes. You're right. I think maybe the first crime's a little better. I didn't. I didn't hate the second crime though, because it had some fun. Like I like the chem printer. I like the idea that it uploaded all the stuff to the cloud, and all these dumb kids didn't realize it. Um, it, it had some cute moments. But um, before we move on to uh, you know, kind of get into our ratings and everything, I did want to let you know you were right. I went back and listened to our Tech War episode where we recast Tech War. Mm-hmm. We did cast Carl Urban as Jake Cardigan. Oh, that is funny because. I mean, we we mentioned this in the last episode. This, in a lot of ways, is so much like Tech War. It's it's creepy. Um, and again, this is a much much better show, version of Tech War. But I do like that we uh, we picked that without knowing. I mean, it's a good choice. He works well. Yeah, he's he's a much better Jake Cardigan than Jake Cardigan. I mean, I still have a soft spot in my heart for Jake Cardigan, but he's who, who a doesn't? very good recast of Jake Cardigan. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you want to give these episodes, there, Luke? Well, with Arrhythmia, you know what I I. I know you say it's still trying to find its footing, the show. I actually feel like it's starting to click for me. And I, I know it's not like grand science fiction or like really thoughtful sometimes. But I am like, I do feel like it's a show that I can sort of sit back, relax, enjoy watching. And like, I don't mind the crime. I really like the super science fiction-y tech that's going on. And some of it doesn't click, but it, it's working for me. I'm, I'm going to give this, uh, I think, a 7.5. Uh, I think you're always just a little bit uh, meaner in your reviews because I think I was more critical, but I'm gonna, still going to give this a seven. I also like this. I thought it was a pretty good episode. Uh, it had, I, th- I don't know if it's my highest rating, but I think it's the episode I like the most so far. Oh, good. Uh, what about what about Perception? I think I like this less than you. I found myself really bored through it. I just, I don't know. For whatever reason, it just didn't click with me. I didn't really care that much. Five and a half. Five and a half. Um, yeah. Honestly, I, I can't really differentiate between these two. I think they both provided me with what i was looking for in the show and it's it's got to be another 7.5 for me wow this is some high ratings all right well i guess that about wraps it up jordan 
So if you want to talk to us about uh, Almost Human or anything else we talk about, you can get a hold of us at continuumdrag at gmail.com. And then we'll be posting some clips from the show or some images and some some little tidbits at uh, Instagram and Twitter at continuumdrag. Yeah, I found a lot of drawings of the two main characters kissing. Oh, well, who doesn't want to see that? I mean, I'll be putting those on Instagram. (laughs) They're both very handsome. They are very handsome. And they're both very charming. I Dorian's blue eyes, hmm. very deep. Yeah, imagine if they were in a, a romantic relationship, what that picture would look like. You don't have to. I won't have to before long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everybody. And Jordan, uh, good podcasting with you. Oh, look forward to episodes, whatever, 16 and 2 next week or whatever it is. <laughs> All right. See you next week, Jordan. All right. Bye. Continuum Drag is recorded at Astrolab Studios in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rexiedler. Produced by Jordan Delick and Luke Black. Special thanks to Adam Wheatner, Jeff Hanley, and Dwayne Wright.